Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. It's Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Jess Lowry to the podcast today. Jess writes about secrets. She's the Amazon Charts bestselling Edgar, Agatha, ITW, Thriller, and Lefty-nominated Anthony-winning author of crime fiction, nonfiction, children's books, YA adventure, and magical realism. She's a retired professor of creative writing and sociology, a recipient of the Lofts Excellence in Teaching Fellowship, a Psychology Today blogger, and a TEDx presenter. When not leading women's writing retreats, reading, or fostering kittens, you can find her drafting her next story. Welcome to the podcast, Jess. Thank you, Julie. I am so happy to be here. I did not get to talk to you enough at Left Coast Crime, so I feel like we get a special... (laughs) session in. Yes. No, I'm so grateful for that. And it was so, so as we're recording this, it's, it's the week after Left Coast Crime in 2022. And, uh, you know, the crime writing community was able to get together really for the first time in two years, um, in a, in a pretty large scale and it was wonderful, but it was exhausting. So, (laughs) and overwhelming. Cause we're all introverts. So Stan and Lucinda organized it. They did a great job. Kelly was brilliant. Toastmaster. Christopher, Katrina, Mick did a great job as guests of honor. It was, the hotel was crap, but that was no one's fault. Yeah. (laughs) But just to get together with readers and writers and talk about books again was wonderful. Yes, really wonderful. And to add to your to be red pile and to um, go to the new authors breakfast. And they did three years worth of debut. So there were 23 authors talking about their books and just to see how many um, new books and new writers are in the world. And uh, which was really, really exciting as well. So I, uh, and I also want to, let folks know that I'm putting the link to your TEDx talk in the show notes for this podcast so that people can um, link to it and to watch it because it's really wonderful. It's about 13 minutes long um, and it's a terrific conversation. So please, uh, you know, check the show notes for for the link to that. Yeah. Thank you. I still haven't watched that and I think I never will. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a, I mean, it was such a personal as, as TEDx talks are, it was such a personal session about, uh, what brought me to writing, what type of writing I do. And I'm glad I did it and it's out there and it's not for me to watch. <laughs> well, I think that um, it's true. I mean, it's very vulnerable to have done that and to have had that conversation. And I want to talk a little bit about that, but but um, because you wrote a book um, about rewrite your life, discover your truth through the healing power of fiction. Um, and I want to talk about that book, which is a gift unto itself uh, for, for folks. But um, let's let's start at the beginning, as I always do in these podcasts. Um, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? I think it was pretty young. My mother is an English teacher. Uh, my dad was an art teacher, 
and we were very, very poor, but we did have a, a library. And so we had the tiniest TV inside a room whose walls were books and they were garage wow. sale books. And so it was a lot of uh, science fiction, a lot of, a lot of pulp, a lot of mystery. Uh, and so it just from a very young age, I was taught to respect books and to respect story. Mm -hmm. And it was a natural leap from seeing that other people wanted to read books to wanting to write books. And did you tell me about your evolution then as a writer? Did you, you know, having a mother as an English teacher helps, but did, you know, writing a book, wanting to write a book and figuring out how to do it. There's, there's many steps there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and then you were an English professor yourself. So tell me about how you built your craft and really sort of started to hone in on the mechanics of writing a book. Yeah. It's such a good question. Cause I feel like the more I know, the, the more I realize I don't know. And so yes. I, I, I read widely for pleasure, but I also read widely for my teaching to figure out the best way to plot, the best way to have a character arc, the best way to work in cinematic settings. And there, and I think it's part of what draws us to writing is that it's not anything you're ever comfortable doing. I don't, I've got 23 novels out there. It's not something I'm wow. comfortable doing. Um, it's a challenge every time. And I have a master's degree in English with a focus in creative writing, but anybody out there who's taking creative writing classes, uh, for me, anyhow, it was a lot of studying how other people did it and not so much directive. These are some ways you could do it. So I think like most writers, I sort of pieced together uh, by doing autopsies of books I loved to see what worked, mm -hmm. what didn't work. Uh, my first master's thesis is, is a novel. Um, and I just started writing really. I just sat down. I'm like, well, I think this could happen next and this could happen next. It is so awful. This first novel that is my master's <laughs> thesis that, uh, after I started publishing, I tried to steal it out of the library <laughs> because people can go into the St. Cloud state library and check out this sort of horrible artifact of me very early on the journey. And the funny thing to me in retrospect, by the way, I returned it. I am, I am, I, am <laughs> I have an overwrought sense of guilt, but I had it in my hands for a good 24 hours. Uh, but if you, if you read it, it's just this very much sort of sprawling plotless story with a lot of love, you know, maybe some good bones, but, but I did not know how to structure a story. And I thought it was so good. I remember when I wrote it, I thought it was so good. And I think we have to tell ourselves these lies to keep writing, you know, but it's, um, it's not good. It's not good. And I couldn't get an agent. I was rejected 25 times and uh, I gave up. It was just too hard to take because this thing I loved, nobody else loved. And I sort of took a break from writing and in fact, took a break from reading because I was teaching. I was a new mom and I don't know if I would have come back to the writing if not. And this is this is part of my TEDx talk, if not for some very unexpected tragedy. And so my first husband committed suicide and it was it was 9-11. And so the whole world felt in a very personal way like it was ending for me. And I was pregnant at the time and I was in danger because of the stress of losing my child who's healthy. His name's Xander. He's 20 years old. He's wonderful. But at the time I was I was very much in danger of losing him. And my therapist needed me to get it out rather than in to get all the trauma, the stress out. And so I started writing and I started writing a mystery novel of all things and a humorous mystery novel because I wanted to control how it ended. I wanted 
justice. I mm-hmm. wanted uh, to show how important my friends were, and I wanted some humor back into my life. And so I don't think I was that much better at writing, but the story was so much more true than what I had been trying to tell before, even though it was fiction. It was totally fiction. But as you know, really good fiction at its heart is the truth, right? We tell yes, right? We tell lies to get at the yes. truth. So this this book was a series of lies and the truest thing I ever wrote. And it became my first published novel. And then I just keep practicing. I just keep asking questions. I attend every workshop I can go to. I read books about writing and I hopefully get a little bit better with each book. Well, one of the things that I can remember hearing about your story um, that uh, that resonated with me is that, you know, Julia Cameron's wonderful The Artist's Way talks about writing morning pages. And and I don't know if it's in the book or, or it was just a conversation I heard you talk about that writing fiction and processing trauma, processing what you're going through, but using those morning pages to actually write your fiction can also heal, especially if you're a writer. Am I misquoting or misre- misremembering this um, from from one of your conversations? No, it's absolutely true. And in my book, Rewrite Your Life, I go, I have a whole chapter devoted to the science of it. And there's so many examples of how it's like homeopathy. So ho- the science of homeopathy is you take a small dose of something um, unpleasant, something unhealthy, and you take it, you take it in a small dose so that your body can build natural antibodies. And so Mm -hmm. when you uh, confront it in real life, you have those, your body knows what to do. And it's very similar to writing. If you take a little dose of something that's happened to you and you weave it into a story, your, your psyche, your emotions are, are able to process it. And the most compelling evidence, and there's also, it's called narrative therapy, and there's all sorts of studies about it. But the most compelling evidence for me was this hospital in Australia where people had visible physical wounds and half of them did narrative therapy where they just wrote about anything for 15 minutes a day, five days a week. They were encouraged to write about their wound, how they got it, how it was healing, but they could really write about anything. And then the other group just had regular hospital um, treatments. They did not write. And the group that wrote that used narrative therapy, their wounds visibly healed faster, like remarkably visibly healed Mm -hmm. faster. And so somehow, I mean, storytelling is so healing. We know this, but writing it sort of supercharges the healing. And this doesn't mean re-traumatize yourself. This means, or, or, you know, it can be backstory of a character and you don't even have to talk about it fully on the page, but you know that this character has experienced that. So you can process through the character life or, or the way you want life to be, um, which is part of the healing. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because it's, uh, it's not about just powering through and doing this thing. That's incredibly painful. It's really, in fact, the opposite of that, of you choose the pace, you choose the focus, but you're just putting words on paper, even if nobody ever sees them, Um, Even if they're completely disconnected from what you feel like you might need to work through, that act of writing, that act of giving voice to your thoughts for 15 minutes a day is profoundly healing. And if it ever gets really uncomfortable, I always encourage people to back off because the beauty of it is that you get to control it. It's not supposed to be painful. Yes, yes. When I heard you or read that or, you know, I mean, I, I... we've known each other for a while and I'm a huge fan. Um, that to me was so empowering, um, as, as, uh, a way to use my, use craft to also 
create change in myself. Yeah. Yes. And I, right. That it is so, I'm so glad that uh, that's working for you because that is so powerful. And then it also, I find if we're, if we're creating this honest fiction, whether it's humorous, whether it's romance, whether it's Westerns, whatever the fiction we're creating, if first it heals us and then it, and then it goes out and readers connect with it. I think it resonates yeah. more when it comes from that place. Yeah. And there's a depth to that. Uh, you know, you teach and you talk a lot about the editing process, but let's, let me get back to the writing process. I love that this, this cozy, um, you know, helped, helped heal you. Right. I, I think that, um, that that's the power of, of books, you know, in that genre. I mean, um, that, traditional slash cozy, whatever you want to call it, where justice is served, where there's community is part of it, where, um, you know, the, the bad guy gets it, where the world is, you know, is righted. Um, that's the power of those books. I think that that's the power of those books right now. Um, and so I love that that's, that's how you healed. Yeah, I absolutely love cozies. They are uh, not easy to write, as you know, uh, and they're important, right? They're comforting. They're, they, they make the world make sense. And I really needed that. And so whenever yeah. anybody uh, denigrates cozies in my presence, I will have none of that. <laughs> yes. No, which is great, yeah. which is so great. But you've expanded what you write. But let me, let me ask you about your process because you write, you wrote a series of, of you know, long, what, how many books 12, in that 12 series? 12 books, 12, 12 right? Yeah. Every month. Yeah. Um, and you also write standalones. Yeah. So, which are, are deeper. Well, they're, they're, they're also the gamut, but you know, lately <laughs> it's been a little darker, um, and, uh, in very psychological, um, suspense is sort of how I would call them. I mean, is that how you would sort of label them? Yeah, they are. Thrillish. Yeah. Uh, my publisher calls them domestic suspense. Um, yeah. But for me, what that term means, and I don't know if this is what they mean by it, but for me, what that term means is, uh, relationship-based suspense, which mm -hmm. is very close to a cozy, right? And also for me, very interesting. Like I like a good escapist thriller when we're not too emotionally connected to the protagonist. But if I if I'm digging in, I relationships. That's where that's where all the mm -hmm. horror lives, and that's where all of the interesting stuff is. So that's what I've been writing lately is the darker stuff. And it came about with Unspeakable Things, which is my book that came out in 2020. Uh, and it was sort of my breakout novel, even though it was my mm -hmm. 20th, 20th, 19th or 20th story. Um, and it was about growing up in a small town in Minnesota. And it's a fictionalized version of this very true story uh, when boys were getting abducted and then returned and mm. they'd show up in school and nobody really told us what was going on. I, I imagine they thought they were protecting us, right? That we were too young to know about this, but it was happening to our peers. And in the town of Painesville, my hometown is called Painesville. Ironically, um, there was a there was a curfew siren at night, and you knew it was coming, and you would run like you were terrified, and we would giggle, right? You know, oh my gosh, the monster's coming! But the monster was coming, and nobody was telling the kids that. And so, I carried a lot of 
uh, issues about that until 2016, when uh, the the person who had abducted all the boys and actually kept one and murdered him was caught. And when that happened, oh. and it was back in the headlines again, I started to remember all the childhood stuff. And I invited a bunch of people from my high school over, maybe a dozen showed up. And everybody in that room had trauma from those days from growing up scared. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I turned into the story because it was just so present and unspeakable things really is a fictionalized version of those days uh, over the course of a summer. I can't, well, I can't imagine, but I can. And I can also imagine parents trying not to traumatize kids, but that doesn't help. Like it's still, (laughs) yeah, that's terrifying. And it's in the eighties and nobody knew how to talk about this stuff. And and frankly, quite a few of our parents, including mine were pretty messed up too. So they did not have the tools to even help themselves, let alone help others. So, yeah. So I, I really believe there's always time for healing. It doesn't matter how far past or how many bad choices we've made since. There is always time and space uh, to heal. So that's what I focused on in that book. Yeah, which is, um, as you said, a breakthrough novel for you. And and you've been following up with others since. Um, But can I ask you, as we're talking about this, just about your writing process, Mm do you write every day? Do you plot? I mean, is it different for the series versus the standalones? I know that you do a ton of research because these standalones aren't current day. You're usually um, in another time, which you may have lived through, but you weren't the person you are now then, right? Exactly. So can you just talk about your process a little bit? I can, yeah. And it, of course, it alters for the project, but I have a pretty similar process across books. And that is, uh, first of all, I outline. And I give myself, if I have time, two to three weeks to outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're and so I'm called, a, I'm a plotter. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm a plotter. You're a plotter. Okay. Yeah. And I, um, so I teach widely and I always ask my audience and it's about half, half. Yeah. And even among published writers, it's about half, half. So I never want to, uh, give the impression that one method, one method is better than the other. Right. But what works for me is to plot and not in great detail. So a book has about 70, 80 scenes. And so I summarize uh, about two to three sentences per scene and it, frees me up to really focus on the character development and to follow sort of the energy of the story when I'm writing without worrying about if the plot makes sense. So I spend about two to three weeks and really dig into that. With the historicals, while I'm outlining, I also watch movies from that time period. And Mm. it's a great way to, it's immersive, right? It's an immersive way to, to experience it. And I specifically, particularly seek out horror movies from that time period. Interesting. Yeah. And they're not, uh, I'm not, I don't enjoy watching graphic violence. However, I really do enjoy the suspense and the terror of every good horror movie tells the story of what people are afraid of, you know, yeah. whether it's conformity, whether it's um, government, whether it's a patriarchy, it's about what people are really afraid of in this time period. And so that's what I bring in for my research. Uh, and then just general online these are the clothes. These are the cars. These are the phrases we used. Uh, I love, I love that research. I absolutely love it. And then once I have the outline, again, depending on my, on my uh, deadline, I write five to seven days a week, uh, about 1500 words a day until I get that first draft. 
And are you a morning, an evening, uh, when you got, you can find the time? I mean, do you have a schedule for your writing? Yeah, I, um, I, so I, until August was a full-time teacher and for most of my teaching life, I was also a single mother and, and I was writing one to two books a day. So that whole time I was by necessity, when can I write? That's what kind of writer I am. But now, now that I'm retired from teaching and writing full time, I have no structure and I'm, and this is since August, I'm trying to figure out how, how I do this. And so I think mornings works better, uh, because then I don't get distracted. And so lately I've been, I get up and I, and I, uh, don't even check my email. I just write my words and then I feel righteous for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, we're sisters in crimes doing write-ins. This is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. camp NaNoWriMo and we've got write-ins early in the morning and, right. you know, a dozen people come on and they're like, well, now my day I've done it. I've written yeah. however many words. I mean, it's, it's whenever you can find, there's no right way to do this, but whenever you can find the time. Yeah. And I actually have, uh, I have uh, writing, I have friends who are writers in Minneapolis and they come over too. And we sometimes will write together. Like, you know how toddlers don't play together, but they play next to each other. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Parallel play. And so that's what we do. And it's, uh, it's nice to have the human warmth of somebody else quietly at their yeah. computer. So, so that's something else that the uh, pandemic has helped me to do. Yeah. And I think that write-ins do the same thing. Even if you're not seeing people, you can see them in chat. But the fact that a dozen people are all doing this at the same time from around the world is just an energy flow that is really fabulous. Yeah. Um, So when, and I should just go back and say plotters and pantsers. I mean, there are moments when a plotter pantses and there's a moment when a pantser, which means writing by the seat of your pants, has to stop and sort of figure out the next three scenes. So, I mean, there are hybrid moments, but um, I always like talking to other plotters. Um, And I do think that time to plot is really helpful because even if the book goes off, you've got a map. And for me, um, like you, it's just um, having that roadmap is critical to, to, I I can't catch up. I I can't keep the whole book in my head. Right. And I wonder if that's the the main difference is so when we're outlining, we're basically writing just a really, really bare bones first draft, right? And but a yeah, but a pantser can hold. I think the ones I talk to, they can hold yeah. so much more of the story in their head. Yes, and it yes. makes more sense to them to do a more completely fleshed out first draft. I'm in awe of that, but I, I, I it's not how my. That's exactly is. what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also love that you write these scene cards, but you don't use Scrivener, right? I've tried Scrivener um, and, and I, cause I want to like it cause I'm so uh, controlling <laughs> and Scrivener really allows, I mean, it allows you to make index cards. It allows you to have a corkboard that you put them on your research, your character arcs, you can all put it in there, but no, I use Microsoft word uh, to write my books and I do my outlines on index cards. And it's, um, a, for me, it's a method because it's so visual and it's so uh, tangible uh, that it works really well for me. And for Sisters in Crime members, uh, Jess did an amazing editing 
class, master class, in January of 2021. Uh, it's available in the webinar archives. And I have watched it three times. I mean, it's just, there's a handout. I mean, every time you revisit the editing process, I just find it helpful because you talk about doing those index cards again once the first draft is done. Mm -hmm. And making sure the story makes sense. Yeah. So it's like the the you know developmental stuff, and then the layering on and the richness. And can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's that process um, is where is how you grow as a writer. Yeah. Is spending time on that layering of details and thinking about it. And you've been helpful um, to so many people. So many people watch that. Uh, but but in really being mindful about the, that level of detail that makes the difference. It just adds that something something to the to the narrative. Right. And it's not that much more work to to add it either. I think that when I talk to a lot of writers, they dread editing because it feels like just this huge reworking and it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so in broad strokes, I write my scenes on index cards, about 80 scenes per book, like I said, and it's, you know, one to two sentences. And then I lay them out on, I lay the index cards out on the floor and I make sure the plot is moving in the direction I want. And I make sure the characters are developing whether they're evolving or devolving, they're changing. And sometimes I have to throw cards out. Sometimes I have to add cards. But once I get about 80 cards in the order I want, I sit down and write that book. And then when I'm done, I let it sit for a couple of weeks because we can't, if it's something you just wrote for me, anyhow, I see how I wanted it to be <laughs> and not how it really is. Right. So I let right. it sit for two weeks. Um, and then I go back over and basically do a reverse outline. And I look at the cards uh, and sometimes I have to add on to them because of course the book changes as you write it from the outlining to the writing. So I update the cards so they're accurate. And then for each scene, uh, I I call it the, the ARISE method. So it's A-R-I-S-E. Uh, a is for action and any sort of physical movement. R is for relationship. And that can be romance, friendship. It can just be humor. I is information. S is suspense. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a suspense novel. It's just the act of not knowing what's going to happen mm -hmm. next and caring. And then E is emotion. And so I try to see how many of those five pivotal requirements of a book are met in that single scene. And if it's only one or two, like if I'm only giving information, uh, it, the weather is like this, the date is this, here are the people here. I know I've got a dead scene and I either combine it with another one or I put in a little bit of action or a little bit of suspense. And I just, I go scene by scene and I just put the letters up in the top corner. And if it's got three of those, A-R-I-S-E, if it's got three of those, it's a good scene. I know it's a keeper. Yeah. 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 I love that. And I love that um, scene by scene. So, so also you can make scenes just as way of uh, conversation for, because I'm sure we have a lot of emerging writers uh, listening to this. A scene could be a chapter, but you can also have two or three scenes or two and a half scenes in a chapter. So yeah. this is, these scenes are, are self-contained action moments um with the same characters same place you know if somebody else comes in or they go somewhere else that's another scene and so when you talk about 70 to 80 scenes you're not talking necessarily about chapters right. you're talking about um you know 
containers of action, and each one of those containers needs to move the story forward. Otherwise, why is it there? Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, seen as a single point of conflict in a single location, usually with the same people. And I actually, I really like to break up chapters by scenes, uh, because if you end a chapter in the middle of a scene, we want to naturally complete that circle. How is this conflict resolved? Where did they go to next? So people keep reading. But that is really important to make clear that scenes and chapters are separate yeah Yeah, that the scene is an organic container I love that that phrase that you used it's a container and a chapter is is it's manufactured it's wherever we want to put a chapter break yeah and there's some like the Thursday Murder Club uh, is a book I read recently where every scene is a chapter so there's like a hundred chapters in this book Um, but most books will have two two or three scenes 2500 word chapters so that you know it's uh it sort of is i i I don't know i i don't know which is better but um you know these are choices you make as a writer Um, yeah i'm seeing shorter chapters in more recent books Uh, even when they're not thrillers thrillers uh pretty often have shorter chapters and i suppose it's our attention span? I don't know, but I, I am seeing that movement. Yeah. And I, I find sometimes these shorter chapters, especially if you're switching point of view is mm-hmm. helpful. It's like a palette, a moment where you go, Oh, now we're hearing it from this point, but I'm noticing um, smaller chapters as well. And I don't know how I feel. About it. <laughs> it's easier if you're reading in bed and you just want to go to sleep. You can. Yes. <laughs> you can... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but usually it's like, Oh, it's only three pages. Let me read another yeah. one. And, it's like know. potato <laughs> chips. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so why, you know, as a teacher and as a writer, you know, tell me about writing advice that you've gotten, like what was the worst piece of writing advice you got early on or that you gave yourself? And, and what do you want every writer to know? What's the best piece of advice you give folks? Because everyone's journey is different. There's no one way to do this. Right. Yeah. And you know what? The the worst advice I got was the opposite of that, which is here's how you need to write. Like this is what yeah. this is what a story needs to have, um, especially if you write genre fiction like you and I do. Uh, I was taught quite, quite a bit that that wasn't really a book, right? That it was, I don't know, some sort of frivolous, it was entertainment, um, as if that's a bad thing too. But, but I was taught a book has to have gravitas. It has to have, it has to take on these, um, major human issues in a really sort of upfront way. And that's, that's just how it has to be done. And if you're a if you're a pantser, you have to be a plotter, right? You have to be organized. And so the worst advice I got was just that there is any single piece of advice, you know, it's what works for a person is the thing they need to be doing. And sometimes it'll change in the middle of a project or between projects. And so it's, um, I think it's the best advice I've ever gotten is to be nimble. If you're, if you're doing something that works, keep doing it. If it seems really impossibly hard and you've lost the joy of it, try something different. Try, try a new writing tool. How about you? What's the best advice you've gotten or worse? Well, I love having these conversations with people on this podcast and I, uh, I'm, I, 
with you. Uh, I the the worst piece of advice I got was the same. It's you know you have to write every day or you have to write in the morning. And I was a theater person for years, and so that wasn't my best time. Or you know you have to do anything. I think is not great advice. Um, I also um, ran into early on some of the genre bias. Um, I was in a workshop once and there was a science fiction writer and I, and everyone else was writing literary fiction. Thank God he was in that workshop with me Yeah, because we would go out afterwards because our stuff would be torn apart, but we were writing good genre fiction. Yeah. It was just not, you know, the door wasn't speaking French to the dog, you know, so it wasn't <laughs> literary fiction. And, and, you know, so if you're writing genre, and chances are if you're listening to this podcast, you write genre or you read genre, um, I think that that's changed a little bit, but but there, uh, the genre bias in certain circles is real. And so ignoring that and just owning that we write, Crime fiction, I, I think, is really important. Absolutely. Being proud of that. Yes. And, you know, honestly, literary fiction is a genre. I, en- I enjoy it. It's yeah. a genre I enjoy, but it's got its specific tropes, just like uh, mystery fiction. I do find that uh, that people still are down on romance writing, which which yeah. which I'm. I'm actually upset about because I think there's so many, just like, just like any other genre, there's so many good books out there and I'm sure there's some stinkers too, just like any other genre, but it's immediately discounted. And I think there's so much, I know I've learned so much from romance writers. I think it's absolutely a, a wealth of knowledge over there. Well, it's a wealth of knowledge and it's also, um, you know, the romance writers are, and we have many people in Sisters of Crime who wrote, write romantic suspense or who have found us just as for writing support, but it's also, they're nimble. They figured out publishing avenues, different publishing avenues first and, and sort of adopted uh, what that, that means, which I think is great. And romance and crime are two incredibly well-selling genres. And so uh, people read them Mm -hmm. and they don't get the respect that they deserve. And they're an important part of the publishing industry. So I'm with you. And I know a lot of people who read Rome. I mean, again, it's guaranteed happily ever after. You don't get those in life. So (laughs) that's, yeah. And there are different kinds of romance as in crime, you know, so that there's um, LBGTQIA uh, romance and crime. There's uh, people of color writing centered uh, ro- romances and crime novels. And so you've got, you can find a story that is either from something you understand or it teaches you or, or shows you another way of looking at the world. And I think, you know, that's a wonderful thing right now. I absolutely well. agree. Yeah, the diversity of books. Um, So your publishing journey is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote your, you know, you have 12 books in your uh, Cozy series. uh, And you have since gotten the rights back and self-published those. So you, another thing you offer um, is you walk people through self-publishing, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. But now you've got these standalones, which are, um, are you know, breaking through and doing different things. Can you just talk about what, you know, what you wish you'd known sooner about publishing? It's, it's, it's a roller coaster yeah. um, of a journey, as is any creative uh, career, <laughs> you know, yeah. visual artist, 
performing artists, writers. I mean, it's not, it's not a straight, it's loops and turns and you're upside down sometimes and you feel like throwing up, but you're on the ride um, until you get (laughs) off the ride. (laughs) It's true. And do writers ever get off the ride? I mean, I, I would keep writing even if I didn't get paid for it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's true. Um, but I do think that there's some people who, when something doesn't get renewed or a contract goes away or something happens, they despair and they leave. And you, uh, my opinion is you cannot equate your success as a writer with your publishing journey Absolutely. because it's two completely different tracks. Yeah. So you need to find the joy in the writing and, and do the best you can with the business, but the business is a heck of a business. Well, it's arbitrary. It's not in, that I've seen very much connected to the to the writing. It's just a very arbitrary. So my um, I started out living in rural Minnesota, dial-up internet, dot matrix printer, and I wrote query letters and sent them out to New York, which is where most of the uh, agents were based at the time. I got rejected 423 times. Uh, 424, the agent signed me. She couldn't sell. Um, but my second agent sold that series to Midnight Inc., which was, yeah. <clears throat> they are since defunct, but they were a great small press. Uh, when Terry, great when, small press. They were so good. When Terry Bischoff was acquisitions editor, she found some of the best and the brightest. She was the first one to publish Kelly Garrett, um, yeah. Jen Mallier. Like she found all of these uh, writers and really built it up. But then- it closed down as many small presses do. Uh, and so I had those 12 cozies with them and I also had two thrillers with them. And I wrote in between the nonfiction book, Rewrite Your Life. And then I started writing unspeakable things. Um, and I had a couple books that I that had sat in the drawer and I decided to self-publish them. And then I got the rights back to my 12 books, uh, the 12 Murder by Month cozies and self-published them. And what I found was it's so much work for the marketing the act of uploading them, the act of finding a cover designer, the act of um, doing layout, which is actually pretty easy now with vellum. That wasn't too hard. And I kind of like doing that stuff, but the marketing is ongoing. If you want, yeah. if you want to make money, you have to be doing the Facebook ads, uh, trying to get a book bub deal. And uh, now there's the apps out there which I'm exploring, um, again, thanks to excellent advice from, from romance writers, but there's apps like Radish, um, iReader, Crazy Maple, uh, Galatea's breaking into mysteries now, but these are apps, many of them based overseas that are gamifying writing. And so you can, uh, submit your books to them, upload them chapter by chapter and reader readers pay for coins. And then they get this, it's like the old serials, right? You could, you just wanted to know what the next one was happening. It was going to happen, but you have coins. So you can, you can speed through it if you want. And there's a, there's a lot of money to be made in this, but it's a new, it's a new avenue. So there's all of this stuff to keep on top of with self-publishing. And I, I really hit it hard for a few months and then, and then I just ease off and I just think I want to write. <laughs> and then I really yeah. hit it hard and then I ease off. Uh, but then with unspeakable things, uh, my agent couldn't find a home for it anywhere because it's a it's a it's a weird little book, right? I mean, it's it's for adults, yeah. but it's got a twelve year old protagonist. It's very dark, um, small town, middle of Minnesota, and she she couldn't find a home for it. And 
is a last ditch we submitted to Thomas and Mercer, which is the mystery arm of Amazon Publishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the editor there picked it up and she's, she's, I think my soulmate, like she likes all the weird stuff I write. She gives excellent feedback. Um, she's championed my, my weird little books and they're, and they're doing really well, but because I write in so many different, so I've got the cozies, I've got the dark suspense, the thrillers, the nonfiction, I have a magical realism and a young adult book out there because I write in so many different genres, uh, success in one doesn't really transfer to the other one. Yeah. Right. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Well, and you write under the same name for everything, which I think is, is really interesting too. I mean, that's a, uh, you know, sometimes people have to write or find a a pen name, but it's also could be a business decision, you know, to say, yeah, I'm writing these darker books. So I'm going to use my first two initials and, (laughs) or I'm going to do something else. Had you thought about that at all? I had thought about that. And actually, really seriously thought about it with my thrillers um, because thrillers can often sell better under a masculine name. Um, But ultimately I decided, and I really believe this, that readers are smart. They will see my name if they're they're interested, follow it to the book, and then they'll look at the book's cover and read the description and decide if they don't want to or do want to read that. And so, yeah, I decided ultimately to trust readers and I think it's going okay. Yeah, no. And also, if you go to your Amazon page, for example, you see the different covers. It's pretty obvious what's yeah. what. <laughs> yeah, right. And readers are the yeah. smart. I mean, they read. They're the smartest people out there. They, they got this figured out, I think. So we started this conversation talking about having just seen each other at a conference. Can you talk about the importance of community? And you talked about inviting people over during the pandemic to write together. I mean, it's like, I love that. Just like make a pot of tea, everyone's going to write. Um, but can, can I, again, I, I talk about this all the time in the podcast, but I don't think that uh, early on people understand the importance of building your community, even before you're published, before you've got that contract before anything, um, finding other writers, uh, and, and, you know, making, finding that group. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely crucial to have community. And and I'm so glad we're talking about it because writing is by its nature solitary. Um, but if it weren't for my mystery community, I don't know where I would be. I mean, some of my best friends have come from there. Uh, the, uh, the best advice I've gotten is from there. We, we help each other to blurb. And I think about one of my very best friends, Erica Ruth Neubauer, uh, incredibly successful, cozy writer, won an Agatha last year. She she became part of the community very early on as a mystery lover, right? So she would come to yeah. conferences. I, I can't speak for any other genre, but mystery writers are so welcoming. They yeah. um, are so, I mean, if you just walked up to a group of us, we're so shy that we love, we love the chit, right? The chance to talk to somebody else. And so she came into the community that way, started reviewing books and then started writing books. And and like I said, now she's incredibly successful. Her books are wonderful. And so the community is important, not only for the morale, but also for the connections, for the, for the publishing insight. Um, But yeah, mostly for the morale. I love, I love writers. It's, it's, we're the same kind of weirdo. (laughs) <laughs> and I do think that the crime writing community is um, because uh, we work out our aggressions on the page. Yeah. It is a particularly welcoming and for the most part, I mean, not everyone's perfect, but for the most part, kind mm-hmm. group of people um, so that, you know, if you're if you're even 
thinking about being a mystery writer, yeah. find a conference and go to it. Go to it. And then go to the bar. You don't have to drink. Just go to the bar and everybody is hanging out and uh, swapping information, laughing, uh, getting to know each other. So BoucherCon is in Minneapolis this September. Yes. It's, the, yeah. you know, it's the international it's crime conference. There's many good ones, but this is the big one. And it can be overwhelming how many people are there. But if somebody is thinking about coming, will you be at BoucherCon? I will be at BoucherCon, Okay, Con, so if yes. somebody comes and they see you or me, they should just walk up and say hi if they're feeling overwhelmed, yes. right? We'll take care of yes. everybody. Well, and <clears throat> you are the co-toastmaster with for BoucherCon yeah. with the wonderful Laurie Raider Day. Um, so you're in charge of making people feel welcome. And, yeah, it is, you know, it is my job. People- yeah, so people have to come up and say hi. I have no choice. I'm yeah. obligated yeah. to be nice. I will do it. <laughs> and making the banquet move and doing yeah. all the, I mean, it's not a small task, but you're both going to be terrific at it. Yeah. Um, BoucherCon is is huge Mm -hmm. but again you could find your niches of people or go to a panel and just you know you'll find people so um uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a tremendous, because Spatcher Park Con's been canceled for the last two right? years. So yeah. people are, are waiting to see each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be great. I think it's so. Really great. So Jess, what's next for you? Yeah, so I happen to be leading a writing retreat in Italy. You should come. <laughs> <laughs> I joke because you are coming. So it's uh, May May 14th through the 20th. Um, so yeah, I lead I lead a couple writing retreats every year because I love and miss teaching. So I want to make sure I have this opportunity um, to sort of open my toolkit and ha- let anybody take whatever tools they need. And I'm also working on... Um, this this just happened a week and a half ago. My editor called me up, and because I'm neurotic like many writers, I thought she was calling to fire me and just say, <laughs> don't, don't bother with that next book. I know you're halfway done, but just don't worry about it. <laughs> and instead, she said she loved a short story I submitted to her so much that she wanted me to switch course and write that as a novel uh, rather than the one I had been working on. And and I could have said no, but I was so excited also by the short story that I said yes. So I have to get a first draft done by June 1st. <gasps> yeah, it's crazy. Cake. I found out about it right before Left Coast, and I don't, I still don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it because I have, I have work ethic. So that's what's next yes. for me. Boy, that is next. I mean, so, so. You've written the short story, so you have these characters you can, you know, and obviously the short story was big. It's bigger than the short story, so it's meant to be a novel, but still June 1st is... Yeah, yeah. and when I wrote that short story, I was so proud of myself because I just stuffed it with all this sort of um, suggestion of what happened to them outside of the short story. I had no idea what it was, though. I'm like, yeah, there was some, she's got a cult, a church cult haircut. And I let that one lie. And now, now I have to figure out why does she have that? What's, what's going on? So I sort of uh, I sort of put landmines out there that uh, now I have to avoid. And then I have a book coming out November 1st called The Quarry Girls. And I mm-hmm. am so excited about this one. It's the best thing I've ever written. And it's about the period in the 70s when there were three, two and possibly three serial killers operating in the small town that I lived in. And just... Uh, Again, how, it's a theme that I keep returning to, but how 
as children, we navigate knowing our environment is dangerous. And is it based on truth? It is. Yes. So where did you grow up? I mean, you know, holy moly. I know people should just not follow me physically, geographically anywhere. I'm trying to, I was on a panel with somebody once and he turned to me and he said, what are they going to figure out? It's you. (laughs) It was St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is now a a city of population 63,000 in central Minnesota. And it's right up the road from Painesville, which is where we moved to um, when I was, I think in fourth grade, but anyhow, in St. Cloud, Minnesota, there were two serial killers operating. And then the third uh, killer has never been caught. They think he has killed other people, but he can't for sure be named a serial killer because he's never been caught. And it was, you know, it was the seventies. And so mm-hmm. a lot of, like we were out playing late at night, you know, yeah. we knew where everybody was. Uh, people would hitchhike, right. It was just a different time. Yeah. yeah. And I do, I, I, you know, I mean, that's still a lot, but, but it was a different time where right now we hear about all these terrible things that happen, but it's because we hear about them. They've always been happening. We just didn't put it together or, you know, people didn't, it was a blurb in a newspaper or people covered up the story. So we didn't understand what was happening Um, because it's, I don't think it's more dangerous now to be alive. I just think we know about it. Right. And and in fact, until recently, the violent crime rate since the eighties has been going down dramatically. The coverage of it is going up dramatically. So we think there's more, uh, even though there isn't more. It's exactly what you said. It's always been happening. It's just, we didn't talk about it or hear about it. Right. Right. And it's, and it's violent crime. It's all kinds of crime. I mean, we, we just didn't know. Yeah. Um, so Quarry Girls is out in November. You, you're going to pull out a first draft of a book by June 1st. First draft or completed draft? Completed first draft. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll see you for part of that. So I'm, I'm here for you, but that's a lot. Um, and you know, people should look at your website because you can, you talk about your books, but you also offer classes online and you offer, um, you know, we'll show if you're doing a workshop live, but if people just want to sort of dive in or understand, um, some of the methods you have for teaching, you make it available really reasonably online. You have a wonderful um, uh, presence and and way of taking classes. And again, if you're a member of Sisters in Crime, I highly recommend the editing um, masterclass you did because it's tremendous. It's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And I did uh, on my Jess Lowry Creative Writing University, I did just drop the prices of all the classes to $4 just to make them, it's enough to pay for the upkeep, uh, but otherwise they're accessible, hopefully to everybody. Because uh, we're all in it's this amazing. together, right? We all we're all in yeah. this together. Well, and no matter where you are on your writing journey, taking another class or, <laughs> or learning how somebody else does something, you know, it, it's like any creative realm. It your tools don't work all the time, or they stop working, or you need to be re-inspired. And so I think learning how other people do things and really um, exploring that can be a gift if you feel stuck as a writer. Totally agree. And for $4 a class, you know, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I've loved talking to you. So I look forward to spending more time with you. Uh, How about Italy? 
<laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay, I'll see you then. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.